my, oh my. We're moving in a series. And actually, we've just finished a large series, and today marks the beginning of a new series. And we told you at the beginning of school, at the beginning of the school year, that we would do that. We would move in themes. We would move in particular directions so that you as a student body can understand what the Bible has to say in certain large areas and, and give you enough time to hear enough about it so that you can begin to take the responsibility to move our campus in that direction. And that's exactly what you as a student body are responsible to do. We bring all this information to you. We, we, we preach to you from the Word of God. We clarify what the standard is. And that's all we can do. The rest we leave in your hands. And we present you with the challenge of either establishing the Master's College for certain characteristics and certain qualities and we're known for certain things or we're not known for those things. We're known for other things. We'll be known for something. We can count on that. The question is what are we going to be known for? And so we start this morning a five-message series on the church or the Master's Method or have entitled it. And I'll bring a message on it. Dr. Duncan will bring one on Friday. And then Alan Hadidian will bring three consecutive messages on discipleship. Discipleship, which is to occur in the church. So it all begins to bring a unified statement. And um, we're excited to start the series and we're excited to see you people respond. As you know, in the past at the college, we've had as a requirement that everyone be involved in Christian ministry. And it's our desire to remove that requirement and in its place to preach the Word of God on that topic and let you respond out of the personal conviction of the Holy Spirit. I'm sure that all of you won't respond, but those of you who are being led by the Spirit to do that need to do that because that's what I think God would expect of all of us. And then you you who, who move out become our leaders in that arena. So we're going to have a message on the church. But before we begin, I want to get your involvement. I want to get your information. I want you to to share with everybody how you feel. And we'll do that kind of through a word um, response exercise. I'll say a word and you tell me what comes to your mind immediately. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And you can do that. Uh, You know, if I were to say dog, you might say cat, right? First thing. I were to maybe say Bible, you'd say study. Um, Maybe if I were to say parents, you'd say money, right? If I were to say uh, boyfriend, you'd say wishful thinking, right? Something along these lines, all right? Let's, let's try this now. I want you to really be ready. And I want you to capture the first thing that comes into your mind. So you have to be... Are you mentally prepared for this? All right. Here it comes. I'm going to say a word. You're going to capture what comes in your mind. Here comes the word. Church. Raise your hand. Tell me what you had. Yes. Study. Yes. Worship. Yes. Body of Christ. You. Good. Yes. Tremendous. Preacher. People. Edification. Anybody else? These are all so good. Why don't uh, I... There, well, that was my message. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Tremendous. Those, that's all very accurate, very biblical. Now, here comes another one. Thank you for your participation, by the way. Here comes another one. You have to mentally capture it right away. What comes, not into your mind, but what do you think would come into the mind of your unsaved collegiate friend when I would say to them now this is what you have to capture I say the word you tell me what you think they would immediately say when I say the word church yes boring boring rituals rules no way (laughs) yes irrelevant building wait a minute building as in building as in like structure physical sleep Thanks, Steve. Appreciate that. Yes. Hypocrites. Anybody else? Yes. Excuse me? Crowd. What do you go to, Grace? Community? I'm sorry. All right. You know, it's a shame that they'd say that. You want to know why it's a shame? They're too accurate. They too accurately describe the church. The comments that we've just shared in too many cases. The church has become the object of tremendous criticism. The unsaved community says this about the church. We're a social club. We're a place for emotional basket cases to go find some solace. We're outdated. We're old-fashioned. We've retarded the progress of free thinking. As a matter of fact, Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, bless his poor soul, 
wrote an entire chapter on how the church has retarded progress. Some of the things he labels against the church are rather accurate. Among the Christian community, the church has come under tremendous attack. We're labeled as ineffective, dead, impudent, outdated, ill-equipped to meet the dynamic and changing needs of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We see that manifestation in what we call the parachurch. The parachurch. It's not a church. It doesn't have a leadership. It's not structured according to the biblical pattern. The New Testament doesn't even know anything about a parachurch. But we look at Christianity today and much of the people who are doing the work of the kingdom are in the parachurch. We think of Campus Crusade. Inner varsity would be in our area of understanding. And these men, the men who lead this organization some years ago, looked at the secular, Christian, uh, the secular campuses of America and said there's nothing going on. In fact, the collegians there in the secular university, their minds are being destroyed. Nobody's doing anything. The church isn't doing it. And so they create what we call a parachurch organization to move out and do that. And they've done it rather successfully. Listen to a study put out by Crusade Contact, Child for Christ Crusade. It reports this. 5% of church members don't even exist. That means somebody's padding the budget here just a bit. 10% of church members can't be found. 20% never pray. All of these now about church members. 25% never read the Bible. 30% never attend church. 40% never give to any cause. 50% never go to Sunday school. 60% never go to church Sunday nights. 70% never give the missions. 75% never engage in any church activity. 80% never go to prayer meeting. 90% have family, never have family worship. And 95% of church members never win a soul to Christ. Most of the major denominations in America immobilized themselves when they began to assert that the, church, that the word of God is not inerrant. And they gave up on that one basic fact. When they stopped saying that this is in fact the inerrant word of God and is therefore authoritative in my life, practice, thoughts, behaviors, and everything else, they bought the big one and have become totally ineffective in the spiritual battle we fight. So the church... In a bad way, in a country where there is so much opportunity for them to do the work of the kingdom that it, it's bothersome. But what is so tragic about the failure of the church in this regard? Why should it bother us? What is the issue behind the church? To me, what is so tragic is that when the church fails, it is not that which has been conceived in the minds of men which fail. Nor is it that which men have designed to accomplish the work of men which fails. Nor is it that men who purpose glory for themselves have failed. But it is God. It is God's method. God conceived the church. God gave birth to the church. God designed the church for His glory. And when the church does not do what it is supposed to do, God and His desire for the world is in some way not fully realized. That's what bothers me about the failure of the church. It's the throbbing heartbeat and the plan of God to reach the lost and dying world through the local church. I'm going to support that for you in this message. This has particular relevance to you this morning because you are at a Christian college. And Christian colleges are famous, I should say infamous, for their lack of commitment and involvement in the local church. Christian colleges are famous, infamous, for their lack of involvement and commitment to the local church. Because we have everything we need here. We have chapels. We have fellowship. We have Bible studies. Most Christian campuses do that are run by the school. We have, why? What's a church? Who needs it? I suggest the following five statements about the church. First of all, the church is advancing God's kingdom. The church is advancing God's kingdom. Now, before we'll ever understand the importance and the mission of the church, we have to see where it fits in the scheme of God's program through the history of the world. The world is not just randomly moving somewhere. God is in control. And God has a direction and a purpose and a movement for history. 
And before we'll ever understand the importance of the church, we must find where we fit in that scheme. I often use to illustrate this, the, maybe the big play in some football game. And, and to see the big play, the quarterback drops back. He throws an 85-yard touchdown pass. Now, that's a wonderful play. And we can all enjoy the athletic ability that's involved in that. And isolated in itself, it's a nice play. But you put that play as the last play of the game on Super Bowl Sunday for the world championship of football after the game has been struggled back and forth and back and forth and the lead has been taken and given and taken and given and the last play of the game, the guy drops back and throws a touchdown and the team wins. Then the play has tremendous significance, right? To see your church isolated and distinct and separated from what God is doing in history is to see a little building on a block somewhere with people going in and out on Sunday morning. To see the church dynamically and strategically placed in the process of redemptive history is to get a burden and a desire and a commitment to establish oneself in that local church and to move the kingdom forward in that place. So I offer this statement. The church is advancing God's kingdom program. Now, what in the world is the kingdom program? There are two aspects to God's kingdom. There is his universal kingdom and there is the mediatorial aspect of his kingdom. I'm going to try to make this very simple. The universal kingdom simply refers to the fact that God rules everything and everyone forever. He is the sovereign, the creator, the sustainer, the beginning and the end of all things. And he dominates all things. That is God in his universal kingdom. Psalm 29.10 says, The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. Psalm 103.19 brings out the other side. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and he, his kingdom ruleth over all. God is king over all forever. His universal kingdom. There is the second aspect of his kingdom, the mediatorial kingdom. The mediatorial kingdom is that direct rule of God. Excuse me. The mediatorial kingdom is not the direct rule of God, but rather his rule mediated through human instruments. God's rule on earth mediated through human instruments. This is what the Lord had in mind when he prayed in Matthew 6, our father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. What? Thy will be done two places on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the word heaven would describe the universal kingdom. God is the absolute ruler of all things always. And he does that effectively in his heaven. But he prays, Lord, rule here on earth the way you do in heaven. Because we're all too aware of the fact that the earth is the point of rebellion. In fact, earth is that single point of rebellion. Think of it. The stars are in their places because God has said for them to be there. And they obey him completely. The universe responds instantly to all of his commands. And we find rebellion centered on planet earth. It wasn't always that way. When God created the heaven and the earth, he put Adam and Eve in charge. Genesis 1.28 says that he gave them dominion over the earth. He made them vice monarchs of the world. You rule the earth for me. And they did. And it was in submission. It was in harmony. And then you know what happened. They fell prey to Satan and Satan became the monarch of the world. And he is to this day. But God, it's as if God still wanted his rule to be expressed on earth. As if he were saying, I want my will and my word known on the earth. I want my moral standards known. I want the people to be subject to me. I want to call men into my kingdom, though it is in rebellion. We call this long establishment of God trying to bring men back under his rule. We call that redemptive history. We call that the kingdom program. Now, where do we fit in it? Where do we fit he started with the patriarchs, Seth, Noah, Abraham, etc., etc. But because of some things that went on in the world, the world began to have nations. And he felt that the best way to do it would be through a nation. And we call that nation the nation of Israel, don't we? 
Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 12 say, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. God never redeemed Israel. God never made Israel into a nation so that he could have a little spiritual party with Israel and exclude everybody else. The whole purpose that God ever brought Israel into existence was so that Israel could witness to the true living God to all the other nations of the world. And in the way that they would live before God, God would bless them and the other nations would say, my goodness, you are in relationship with the true God. And you must remember that all the other nations of the world are full of polytheism. God's everywhere. And, and it was God's intention to raise up the nation of Israel so that they might clarify who the real God is. But what did Israel do? 2,000 years of hard-heartedness, of absolute rebellion against the plan of God, stiff-necked. He calls them, you have ears but cannot hear, eyes but cannot see. They never really contributed at all. There were some bright spots where other nations would come and understand who the living God was because of Israel. But by and large, the 2,000 years was absolute, total failure. Until finally, when they split the kingdom and Israel was in the north and Assyria came and wiped them out. And that was it. As far as Old Testament records their history. Judah hangs on a little bit longer. And then Nebuchadnezzar in king, with, with Babylon comes and pulls them into captivity. Because they were so out of touch with why God had brought them into existence. And then some years later, he allows them to return to Jerusalem. Why? That they might rebuild the temple. That they might rebuild the wall so that they could await the coming of their, what? Their Messiah, their King. What did they do when he came? Open your Bibles to Matthew 14, if you will. All right, Matthew 12. Now, all we're trying to do here in the first part of our message is to establish where does the church fit? And through that, I hope, gain a great sense of burden for the church and for the mission of the church. Now, in Matthew 12, Matthew wrote his book so that he could present Jesus Christ as king and Jesus Christ's legitimate offer of the kingdom. Now, recall, 2,000 years of hard-heartedness in which God is trying to establish his rule. Absolute rebellion. Captivity in Babylon. Back to the Jerusalem so that they could build the temple and wait for the king. The king comes and his coming is recorded for us in Matthew 12. I'm Matthew in the book of Matthew, and it culminates in Matthew 12. Now, let me help you just a little bit so that you can understand the book. The book presents Jesus Christ as king and his kingdom offer. So in chapters 1 to 4 of Matthew, Jesus Christ is proven to be qualified to be that king. You don't just take anybody to be your king, right? He's got to have qualifications. Chapter 1 qualifies him because chapter 1 shows his genealogy back to the throne of David, and the Messiah would have to come from that. Chapter 2 proves and qualifies him as the king because he fulfills Old Testament prophecies that he would have had to done, and he did. Chapter 3 proves him to be the king because he gets baptized by John the Baptist, whose message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and in that he identifies himself as that coming one. In chapter 4, he goes off into the wilderness and has a moral battle with Satan, and he wins that battle and therefore qualifies himself morally to be the king. First four chapters, Jesus Christ is qualified to be the king. Chapters 5 to 7, we call that the Sermon on the Mount. And in chapters 5 to 7, Jesus clarifies what the kingdom righteousness is all about. There was another kind of righteousness, a human righteousness, a works righteousness that his nation had, had communicated to the people. And it was a whitewashed righteousness. It was an external righteousness. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you've heard that it's been said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that was true. And then he says to them, but I say to you, if you look on a woman to lust for her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And he establishes what true righteousness is, and that is one which comes from the inner being. I am righteous not because I follow rules. I am righteous because I'm a new creature, and I desire to live righteously. So 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he clarifies kingdom righteousness. Chapters 8 and 9, he authenticates himself to be the king. Watch this. He heals a leper. He calms the sea. He casts out demons. He heals the paralytic. He forgives the sinner. He raises a girl from the dead and he causes the dumb to speak. What's he saying? I am no ordinary human being. In fact, I am God. Because those are the things that God can do. 
So, chapters 1 to 4, he proves his qualifications. Chapters 5 to 7, he says, what is kingdom righteousness? Chapters 8 to 9, he authenticates himself. I am indeed the king. Now, an interesting thing begins to happen. With chapters 10, 11, and 12, as Jesus' statement of who he really is becomes more pronounced and more obvious, there is an equal ascending mount of rejection by the nation of Israel. And the more he says who they are, the more they say how much they hate him. And it builds and builds and builds until we come to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 14, we get our first look at the cross. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. It's a picture of the cross very early in the book. And then, as you can see there in verse 22, there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And the compassion of his heart, he healed him. It amazes me. Why did he do that? He didn't have to do that. That man deserved everything he had. But that's just Jesus, you know? He just heals people. He forgives people of their sins. And he healed him, verse 22, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? You see, they're starting to really get the picture of the multitudes. They're saying, this man's from the throne of David. This is our Messiah. What do you see? The religious leader's response. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, catch the significance of that statement. Nation of Israel, 2,000 years, God is working with them to bring his kingdom to the earth. Hard-heartedness, rebellion, stiff-neckedness. He finally sends them the king himself, his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, beyond any shadow of a doubt, clarifies who he is. And at the pinnacle of his revelation, they look him square in the face and say, You're satanic, Jesus. That's what they said there. You are satanic. Now that's it for the nation of Israel. In chapter 13, he talks about characteristics of the kingdom program and it involves the church chapter 16 he says i will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it i'm telling you at this moment in time jesus christ turned his face to the cross and he turned his focus to the church israel was finished they were done you and i we were given birth you understand the significance of that to us you and I, as members of the local church, in fact, the church in itself was, only came into being out of the failure of another group of people who would not do what God wanted them to do. We were birthed with mission and destiny. The church is that way. The reason we're in existence is because it wasn't working the other way and therefore we are here. Now, that doesn't communicate to me some little building on some sidewalk somewhere that I go to on an occasion and fellowship on an occasion. That says to me that the church of Jesus Christ was born with a destiny to do something beyond sitting and fellowshipping. Though that's part of it. The second point. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have seen that the church is advancing God's kingdom. Now, let me just touch on that point one more time. You can look in the New Testament all you want, and you're not going to find any biblical guidelines for a parachurch organization. You're not going to find any instruction as to how to set one up, run one, what its mission is, what its purpose, who does what. Nothing. It's silent. Guess what you find exclusively in the New Testament? The church. Everything we need is divinely communicated. We know who's supposed to run the church. We know who's gifted to equip, to do the work of the ministry, to do the whole thing. It's all spelled out. The church is God's chosen instrument to accomplish the advancement of his kingdom. Well, what does he give us to do that mighty task? What assurance do we have that we can be any better than the nation of Israel? Point two, the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Don't turn there. Let me read it. John 16, 7 says this, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is speaking. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you, but if I go away, I can send him to you. Israel never had the Holy Spirit indwelling them. 
The nation of Israel had as their key leaders at times the Holy Spirit would give a special anointing and be with that man in his calling. But the people of Israel, you and I, the people, never had the indwelling spirit. But it's at the moment of their greatest failure back in the Old Testament. And he's looking for the, the Babylonian destruction. And in Ezekiel 36, don't turn, just write it down, you can look at it later. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28, God brings hope to the people of Israel. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. A new covenant. And he says, in that new covenant, I'll give you a new heart. I'll replace your heart of stone and I'll put a heart of flesh there. A new heart so that you'll have a desire to do these things. And then he says, I'll, I'll, I'll fill you with my Holy Spirit. And then he says... And you'll be able to obey. You'll have the enablement to do what I want you to do. The exciting thing, Christian, is this. As New Testament believers, we share in those blessings of the New Covenant. Let me prove that to you. 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said he'd give us a new heart, right? Here's your new heart. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creature. The Bible says that. Ephesians 4.24 says that that new creatureness has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. You don't have an old black heart like you used to remember in your Sunday school class, you know? Old black heart, get a new white heart. You've got a new white heart. Ephesians 4.24 says it's been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. 2 Peter 1.4 says that you and I as believers have become partakers of the divine nature. You have no old nature in you. That's been crucified. You have a new nature and you, as a part of that, are a partaker of the divine nature. What about the Holy Spirit? He said he put the Holy Spirit. Do I have the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6.19 says the Holy Spirit's in you. Oof. What a thought. Think of it. The Holy Spirit, God, in you. Colossians 1 says Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a phenomenal thought. Jesus Christ in in you. What about my enablement for obedience? He said I'd get that. Well, we did. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. So we're equipped. We're equipped. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I want to bring this out in the way that God brought this out. I think God made a very dramatic statement about this, and we can find it in Acts chapter 1. I think too often, Christians, you and I are guilty of hearing that and going, Well, terrific. So what? Big deal. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. I've got a new heart. Big deal. It is a big deal. Look at Acts 1. What you've got here is a scene which follows the crucifixion of Christ. Christ has been crucified. And with that crucifixion came the despair of his followers. We've been following a man. Thought he was king. Thought he was going to overthrow the Roman government. Thought he was going to establish utopia on earth. And the very people he was supposed to overthrow took him and crucified him. And there was despair. And then he rose again. And they said, hey, maybe we weren't on the wrong track after all. We've never seen anybody rise again. Maybe this really is God. Maybe we weren't wrong the whole time. And now they're very excited. And they gather themselves together in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And gathering them together, he commanded them, he ordered them, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait, wait for what the father had promised, which he said you heard of from me. Verse eight. What is this thing I'm waiting for? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What are they waiting for? The Holy Spirit. What makes you different from the nation of Israel? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Your newness in Christ. All right, so big deal. So they're waiting. They keep waiting until chapter 2. Look over there for a minute. You ever seen a commercial for one of those exorcist movies? I know you haven't seen the exorcist movie because you're so spiritual. Ever seen those kind of ads and commercials for that kind of stuff? And it's kind of an eerie look, isn't it? I mean, the girl's in the bed or somebody's doing something kind of normal and all of a sudden the bed just picks itself up and throws it against the wall. Kind of gives you an eerie feeling because you know there's that kind of power around to do that kind of stuff. This is an eerie passage. This has that weird, eerie flavor. Look at it. Verse 1, chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. Verse 2. And suddenly, suddenly, 
there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now the word violent describes the effect of the wind. It was a destructive wind. It was a violent, destructive wind. The word rushing, the verb form, indicates that it was not pushing itself, but it was in fact being pushed by a superior force. It was out of its own control. This destructive thing was out of it. And the word wind is not the word breeze. It's blast or gush. And you're sitting there. Jesus says to wait. You're waiting. Suddenly out of nowhere, this violent, other-imposed, crushing blast fills the place and you cover your eyes to look up and see little flames of fire on everybody's head. And then you realize that there's no wind at all and there never has been any wind. Look at verse 2. It said there was a noise like a violent, rushing wind. No wind. Now, folks, that's spooky. That's unusual. That's different. You write home about things like that. Dear mom and dad was in class the other day. Had this violent rushing something. Flames of fire. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just send the Holy Spirit? I believe he's making a very dramatic statement. He's saying the thing that is going to make you do what you need to do is the Holy Spirit. 2,000 years of utter failure, inability to do anything right... The Holy Spirit comes here and look, if you will, at verse 41 of the same chapter. So then those who had received the word were baptized and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Holy Spirit shows up. Things begin to happen. Verse 47 of the same chapter. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed and the number of the men came to be about five thousand people you got to see that failure israel failure after failure after failure jesus christ turns his attention to us in the church he says wait for the holy spirit the holy spirit shows up on the scene three thousand people get saved boom two chapters later five thousand we total two dramatic statement church is advancing the kingdom of God. I don't know how well, but that's what it's supposed to do. And the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Point three, or statement three. The church is gifted for service. The church is gifted for service. You know, we in America today are so thrilled with the hyper-gifted. You ever notice that? The super-talented, the whiz-kid, the prodigy. Through the graciousness of some friends in our church at Grace Community Church, my wife and I and Randy and Nikki were invited over the 4th of July weekend just this last summer to go down to a big resort in San Diego. I mean, this thing was remarkable, like 250 bucks a night. Now you know why I was invited. Hmm, I could never afford it. And so we're sitting there and we're going, there's about 30 folks from Grace down there, 30 different families. I mean, this is a huge group of us down there. And we're running around this place doing everything under the sun. We're, we're, we're in pools, we're in jacuzzis, we're playing tennis, we're windsurfing, we're jet skiing, we're hobie catting, we're eating in five restaurants. I mean, it's just mega activity everywhere. We can't even find each other. We're going so fast. Until July 7th at 8 o'clock in the morning, when Boom Boom Boris Becker, the youngest man ever at 17 years of age to win Wimbledon, played in his final match and everybody all of our friends stopped all the activity and focused their attention on a little tv set to watch the hyper gifted person do what nobody else can do win wimbledon at 17 years of age we're enthralled by these men we're amazed at them we want to be just like them we pay them millions of dollars we treat them like gods the hyper gifted mozart mastered the keyboard at age seven by age eight, he played in over half the major cities of Europe. Dr. Rima Libo, thank God for your name. Dr. Rima Libo, child psychiatrist at Dobbs Ferry, New York, tells about a three-year-old kid who was sitting in a playground sandbox drawing a schematic design of a car he was inventing on the spot. Genius. She tells of another kid named Sidney, little Sidney. 
At birth, little Sidney registered neurological reactions of a three-month-old baby. He was so advanced. By the time he was 22 months old, he was studying Hebrew with a private tutor. Sydney, I don't like Sydney any more than you do. Sydney, Sydney at four years old could read and write nine languages fluently. Four years old. Where's the kid? Let's kill him. Right? Amazing giftedness, unnatural, unusual. And we're enthralled by it. Your reactions prove it, right? Everybody's going, ooh, ah, Sydney. I mean, you prove that we're enthralled with the hyper-gifted. I've got news for you. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a spiritual Sydney. Huh? Turn to 1 Corinthians 12, will you? Let me prove that to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that all of us who know Christ, are spiritual Sydneys. Or Sydneys in the spiritual realm. By the way, poor Sydney, he was being tutored by his tutor there. And his overseer, Dr. Rima Libo, bless her heart, came into the room and overheard the tutor telling Sydney that he, in fact, was the Messiah. So they had to discontinue her and get him another tutor. At any rate, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. The word spiritual gifts, actually the only word that's in the real text or in the Greek text is the word spiritual. And what it's talking about is a supernatural capacity for ministry. The Holy Spirit, when he gifts people, and he, by the way, according to verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The Holy Spirit gifts all believers, and when he does, he gives them supernatural, extraordinary uncommon, non-human capacity for ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? You have supernatural capacity that is beyond your gifts, your natural gifts, beyond your talents, beyond your wildest dreams. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has given that to you. Look in verse 5. There are a variety of ministries. You're saying to yourself, terrific, I'm supernaturally gifted. What am I going to do? Sit down in a sandbox and draw a spiritual car? What am I going to do with this thing? You're going to minister it. What's the word minister mean? It means to serve. God has supernaturally gifted you with a supernatural capacity to serve. To serve. You're saying, no, you don't understand. I've been given things before, wonderful things, and it never works out. I got an erector set when I was in fourth grade the best director set they made. I never built a thing. You don't know me. I can never make things happen. I've got news for you. Look in verse 6. And there are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. The word effects there literally means what is worked out or energized. What is worked out or energized. Check this now. The Holy Spirit has gifted all of us with a supernatural capacity for ministry. So that we can serve in the body of Christ. And according to verse 6, he even gives the effect. Or he energizes and therefore produces the result that he wants. He's not even leaving that up to you. He gives you the gift. He gives you the ministry. And then he causes the result that he wants to come about. That's what I call being supernaturally gifted for ministry. That's who we are. What you need to do is go home and look in the mirror and try to convince yourself of that. Right? What are you talking about? I'm not supernaturally anything except stupid. Right? Isn't that how we feel about ourselves? All right. What are we on? Point four? The church is an equipper of the saints. The church is an equipper of the saints. Turn to Ephesians chapter four for a minute, if you will. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, verse 11. Amazing verse. Clarifies everything in this regard. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why? Why did he give those to the church? This is all about the church in this passage. The whole book's about the church. 
verse 12 answers the question. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. He, he designs here the program for the church. He says it's this. I have given you certain men who are gifted in an unusual way. And these, these not, not that they're better. It's just they have a different kind of gift. It's pastoring. It's teaching. It's preaching. It's these evangelizing. These are the gifted men in a particular way. And they are to do something. What is it? What does it say in verse 12? They are to equip the saints. Who are the saints? All the rest of us. These men are to equip you and I so that we can do what? Do the work of the service. So that we can serve. Why are we serving? Right there. To build up the body of Christ. What's the body of Christ? The church. Very simple formula. Gifted men in preaching and teaching so that they can equip the rest of us so that we can do work that will edify the body of Jesus Christ. It just goes on and on and on and on. May I suggest something to you today? If you are not in this process, you are not doing what God wants you to do. It's a heavy statement. If you are not in this process of being equipped so that you can work in the church and build the body of Christ, you are not doing what God wants you to do. How do I know that? I think this verse goes a long way to establishing that. And the only other thing I can say is that the New Testament doesn't even know of a Christian on his own. Every Christian we find in the New Testament is plugged into a local church doing this kind of thing or he's being disobedient and he's being reprimanded. Two groups. You're either being disciplined or you're in the church doing it. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. The Bible doesn't know about a Christian outside the local church. It's, it doesn't even have any thoughts on it. It doesn't say anything about it. If you're not in the church, and you're either not equipping or being equipped so that the work of the ministry might go on, that the body of Christ might be built up, you're not doing what God wants you to do. Take inventory, will you? Take inventory. You know what's amazing about all this is that when you say that you're going to have time for the church or when you say that you are too busy or that you don't like the church or that you don't think the church is important or that you think your ministry is more viable outside the church, do you know what you're saying? You're not looking at some little building on a corner somewhere and some poor pastor in there. What you're saying is that, God, what you have said from your word is that divine and single institution to advance your kingdom... And that institution which you have supernaturally given the Holy Spirit to so that he could supernaturally gift me for ministry so that we can move the kingdom, I don't want anything to do with that. When you stop or are not involved in the church, don't tell yourself you're just not involved with some building somewhere. You are checking out of the plan of God for the world at this time. So call a spade a spade. Be real. Be honest with yourself. And I would suggest that you evaluate what it is that's keeping you from effective ministry in the local church. What is it that's keeping you? And is it that important? Hard things, huh? I say these things to myself. Last point, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. Now, the Bible has many metaphors to describe the relationship of Christ to the church. They use, I am, the I am the vine, you are the what? Branch. I am the or we are the bride and Christ is the groom. He is the sheep, uh, he's the shepherd and we are the sheep. There's only one biblical metaphor, however, which has no Old Testament equivalent and which is found exclusively in the New Testament. And it's this metaphor, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. It's our new special identity. It better explains us than any other. Many things could be said about what it means to be a part of the body of Jesus Christ. But the one that is most important is the unity of the body. I think that's the single most, and we're running out of time, so I'm not going to support that biblically. You can look at it in 1 Corinthians 12.12. You have to take me by faith at this point. That the unity of the body of Christ is what is probably most strongly suggested. So that the body can work together and do what God wants it to do. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus said, I pray, Lord, that they may all be one. He prays that we could experience this unity in the body of Christ. Why? That the world may believe that you sent me. Do you know what he's saying there? There is a direct relationship between how much unity we experience in the body of Christ and how believable Jesus Christ is to the unsaved world. 
Phenomenal statement. The body of Christ, when it works in harmony and union, can accomplish something far greater than it could ever accomplish in discord. Obvious statement, let me illustrate it. Have you ever watched a high jumper? If you've watched a high jumper, you know that a high jumper clears a height with just his body and that the height that he clears, the total height that he clears, is higher than any time his whole body... In other words, his whole body is never that high. He goes over with his head and then the coordinated mind sends out coordinated message to the coordinated body and the back clears, but by this time the feet and the head are both below the mark. And then at the precise moment he kicks his feet and the feet come up and the body has attained a height because of its coordination that it could never attain without that coordination. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Same thing. The body of Christ in the local church. The body of Christ. Think, let that hit you. The, what does it mean, the body of Christ? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Christ is said to be the head. Christ is the head. We're the body. He's the head. And I think just as we close and we understand that the church is advancing the kingdom, that he has empowered it with his spirit, that he has supernaturally gifted each and every one of you who know him for a supernatural ministry, that he, in fact, will make work. When we understand that all of us are to be involved in the process of either equipping or being equipped so that we can do the work of the body of Jesus Christ in the church... It might be helpful for us in closing to understand something of God's perspective. We heard it from our perspective. How does God feel about it? How does God feel when we don't do what we're supposed to do in his body, in the church? I don't know specifically, but I have an idea. I came across a study by Dr. Paul Dudley White that might illustrate this for us. Dr. Paul Dudley White was doing an analysis of the way the brain worked, the way people think. He was doing an analysis of IQ trying to understand what makes people smart and then what makes the rest of us like me not so smart. So he couldn't very well just take out a human brain and look at it. That was alive because that's called murder. So he did what sometimes we have to do to improve human existence. He studied that in an animal. And the animal he used was a little rhesus monkey, very small monkey. And he took the two main arteries that feed the brain and he hooked those in to a larger monkey, the baboon. And the baboon had a flood supply, a blood supply that could feed that little monkey and his own. So everything was still working okay. And of course, the monkey's under anesthesia. He can't feel a thing. And then the doctor, because he had to get to the brain, began to cut away the body and the face and the skull until eventually what was left was the brain of the rhesus monkey being fully supported by the greater blood supply of the baboon. And as the anesthesia began to wear off, they began to analyze the brain and they could determine beyond a shadow of a doubt that the brain was functioning as it always had. And they went on to do all of their tests. You know what struck me when I heard that? I said, when that brain came back to life and was functioning like it always functioned, what was it doing? It was saying, get me a banana. It was saying, swing from rope to rope. It was saying, go, move, do, respond. It was sending impulses to nothing. You and I are the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ loves this world. He died for it. You are His instrument in the church to reach the world, to build up the body of Jesus Christ. And He is in a physical form sitting at the right hand of God at this moment, sending out impulses to His church. May I ask, what is happening? Are we responding? Are we that coordinated athlete that, that, that accomplishes goals that are far beyond any part of his body at any given moment? Where do we fit? Where do we fit? Now, we want to make this practical. Our goal, Dr. MacArthur's goal, my goal, the faculty's goal, the administration's goal, and I, we want this to be your goal. We want the master's college to become famous, not infamous. We don't want to be infamous for a lackadaisical non-commitment to the local church just because the school has so much to offer. We want to become famous as the school that took the bull by the horns and said, we're doing it in the church. We understand what God wants and we're going to respond. 
You must assume that responsibility if we are to become that way. I can't. You must. Dr. Duncan will bring another message out. Diddy will bring some more messages. And we're going to try to fill you with what God wants, and then you've got to take it. Now, we want to help, though. So we've asked, and they're with us today. I'd like us to recognize them. Some of the local pastors from our churches to be here, and they've come graciously. Bob Snyder. Raise your hand, Bob. From this very church. Steve Dixon, college pastor over at Santa Clarita Baptist. We all know Steve. Mike Garman wanted to be here. Couldn't. He's the senior pastor down at Placerita Baptist. Mrs. Peggy Freeman. Peggy? Hi. Thanks for coming. She's the director of Christian education at First Baptist Castaic. Pastor Roller. Raise your hand, Pastor Roller. Thank you for being here. He comes to us from First Baptist Church of Newhall. The First Baptist Church of Newhall. Paul. Paul Brown. He's from Grace Church. Chris wanted to be here. Couldn't be here. Sent his faithful man, Paul. Just to make the statement that they care and they want to be involved. These men are here. These women are here because they understand and they want to be a part and they want to help. And they wanted to come and be a part of this message so that tonight at nine o'clock. And here it comes, student body. Here's the challenge. We're inviting you tonight at nine o'clock to the dining center. And these same people have accepted the invitation to be here. Mike will be there. Chris will be there. All these key people who work in our churches, in our area, want to be there. And you know what we want to discuss in a kind of an open forum? How can we make it happen? How can we make it happen? How can we beat the average, everyday, typical college, Christian college setting where everybody's so locked up in their school that they don't care about the church? That takes some ingenuity. We've got to think that through. We've got to talk about that. We need your input. We want you there. Nine o'clock tonight in the student center. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to commit to anything except coming with an honest and an open heart and calling it like it is. We want to ask you questions like, what's the most effective thing you've ever done in the church? What's the least effective thing you've ever done in the church? How could the church change to make things effective? Well, these guys want to hear those answers. They want to give you their input. So we invite you to come. We invite you to respond to the preaching of the Word of God and make us famous for the things that God wants to be famous for, which is the strong, healthy, dynamic church. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, it at times is staggering to know what you would want to do through us. But Lord, I believe that in this congregation, in this group of people, because I've interacted with them, I know that there are hearts that love you and that want to be all that you've called them to be and are willing to pay the price. And as you begin through your word to define that the price needs to be paid in the local church so that we can move the kingdom. We would thank you for that. We would thank you for counting us apart and want to play our part. And tonight, Lord, for those who can come, bring us there and, and be with us that as these godly leaders from the church interact with these godly students from the school, all of us understanding the need somehow to pull it off, that you would guide and lead and direct. And we ask these things only for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.